Welcome to the Landmark Podcast. I'm Jason Calhoun, pastor of Landmark Pentecostal Church in Texarkana, Texas. We encourage you to visit us on the web at landmarkupc.net for a schedule of services and upcoming events. We pray that you are blessed by the message today. Thank you again for listening. Since you brought your Bibles, that's what I tell them at home. Since you brought, thank you, sir. I'm going to put you in my will. Hallelujah. Since you brought your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Judges. We will go to chapter number six while you are doing that. I like that piano playing. Keep doing that for a while. That's, she's doing a good job, isn't she? Give her a hand. How about a good hand for all the music? Music is one of those wonderful things in the church. You only notice it when it goes bad. All those days they play flawless, sing flawless, and bring great blessing. It's almost secondary in your mind. I want to say thank you to all the musicians, their hard work, their years of applying themselves to the work of God. Uh, God is blessed, and we are blessed because of your devotion. So... I want to say today how happy I am to be here. I give honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. Without him, none of us would be here today. And he deserves all of our thanks and all of our praise. I want to give honor to my pastor, Brother I. H. Terry, deceased now, but I don't ever want to forget what he put in me. And I give honor to all the ministry that are here today that have in their lifetime answered the call to ministry. Most of them, if not all of them, have sacrificed greatly to answer the call of God. And I certainly salute every preacher that's in this house today for your dedication and your humility. I want to take a special moment to say how much I give great honor and love and respect to Pastor Calhoun and Sister Calhoun for a lifetime invested in this city right here. They came and they stayed and they have been exemplary. I believe personally that they have sacrificed greatly. And I believe there have been sacrifices you will never know or see. There have been hard times and yet they endured. And they have been faithful. And as much as we try to honor them and give them appreciation today. We would never know all of the ins and outs. But one of these days the Lord's going to finish it. And they'll hear the words to that old hymn, It Will Be Worth It All. I have immense respect for your pastor. He is a Christian man. To me, that's the highest honor in the world. I tell my church and anyone that knows me, when I die, if you're at my funeral, all I want you to say is he was a Christian. I don't care about any other accolades or awards. Or I want to be a Christian in this life. And to me... This man personifies being a Christian. He's navigated so many situations in his life, his personal life, the church life, and every single time his default position has been he's a Christian. I feel that he has maximized his talents, his abilities, which are many. He has not held back or kept back for the Lord. He's given everything he had to the work of the Lord. 
He's an extremely gifted man in many ways. So we're trying today to honor him for his work here on 17-year anniversary. But we do realize that our feeble efforts will fall short of the great sacrifices he's made. But we wanted to try. Sister Calhoun is a special lady. She has this wonderful godly way about her that draws people to her. And she has been an exemplary Christian woman. I admire her very much. And I want to say to this church, you're very blessed to have her as your first lady. She is genuine. I appreciate her prayer, her worship, her love of holiness, the example she sets. I believe she has inspired hundreds of ladies to be a better Christian by her example, and I appreciate that. And these two people have labored here for 17 years, and this church is growing and flourishing because of their dedication. Just for a moment, I want to give them a good hand clap, not for the achievement of a lifetime, but for a lifetime of achievements. Let's give them a good round of applause. Happy 17th, Pastor. Give it a little more energy than that. Why don't you? Wonderful. Happy to be here with my good friend, Brother Archer. Love him dearly. Been able to be with him on numbers of occasions. Spent time in his home. He spends time in my house. I call his grandkids my grandkids. And I love him dearly. And I'm looking forward to tonight. I'm glad I don't have to preach after him. Because he makes it hard to measure up. He is such an incredible speaker. Glad to have my sister here today. Uh, My two older sisters were the beast and the false prophet in my life. I tell that everywhere I go. People say, are we going through the tribulation? I always say, yes, I've already been through it. I know who the Antichrist is. I know who the beast and the false prophet are. And uh, I appreciate her having such a good, uh, fun spirit about it. My parents passed away, and we were there in the home doing all of the getting rid of the stuff and getting ready. And and without even thinking, I said, hey, beast. She was in the other room. She said, what? So we've been uh, living this life a long time. I love my sis. She's been through some tough ordeals. She's hung in there. Sometimes by a fingernail, but she's still here today living for God. And Thank you for coming today, Marlene. All right, let's go to the word of the Lord. Judges chapter number 6, verse number 11. The book of the Judges, in my opinion, is not chronological. It's regional. You can have your difference of opinion on that. It's not a biblical thing. But when you read the exploits of Shamgar and Elon and Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah and all of the others, the book starts at the top of the country, goes to the center, to the east, and finally ends up in the south. I don't think it's linear. One of the reasons for that is in the end of the book, when it gives the terrible, tragic story, of men that lost their lives, 65,000 of them. It mentions the high priest, and that high priest was at the beginning of the book. So for that reason, I can't date this to you as to when it happened. I think this was one of the regional moments to show how God worked in various parts of the nation. 
So let's read verse 11. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Oprah, that pertained unto Joash the Abizrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Sorry, I don't mean to be emotional, but I'm feeling this text right now very deeply. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said what we all do. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then has all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of? Saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Notice in verse 19 that Gideon went in and cooked a little meal. And it says he brought unleavened cakes. In verse 20, it mentions the unleavened cakes again. In verse 21, it mentions the unleavened cakes a third time. These would be the barley cake that will come to play later in this divine story. The Lord will help me today. I would like to speak to you today on the wine press syndrome. A syndrome is a group of symptoms that consistently occur. They interact, they complement, they feed one another. It's not one emotional response, it's compounded, it's complicated. Fear. Insecurity, worried about the surroundings, inferior feelings, not as capable as someone else. And so Gideon was definitely afflicted with the winepress syndrome. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you today for this pastor and his wife, this church, the faithful members. There are people here today, Lord, that have survived pastoral changes. There are people here that have lived for God many years through adverse circumstances. There are people here who have overcome sickness and overcome tragedies in their life and hard times. I pray the Holy Ghost cloud come down in this building today and bless every single one of us. You know how to do it, God. You know how to take one word, Lord, and bless everyone in the entire building. I pray for that anointing. I pray for that spirit of revelation and understanding. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Can you say amen? amen? Shake someone's hand as you sit down and say, you need to help the guy preach. On June 26th, 1949... There was a funeral in Tel Aviv, Israel, like none the world 
had ever seen before. And none has ever been seen since. The newspapers reported that day that there were tens of thousands of people present in and out and around the great synagogue that day. In the main hall of the synagogue was a glass box that was five feet long and inside that glass box were 30 porcelain urns. The newspapers reported that inside of these 30 urns were the ashes of an estimated 200,000 Jews who had been murdered in the Holocaust. The box was loaded onto a police vehicle that would travel through the city streets. The pace was very slow because it had to make its way through thousands of mourners who began to cry, Mama, Papa. As this procession made its way to Jerusalem, to the cemetery where they would be interned, some, were some, over, some of these people were so overcome by grief, they just fell out and fainted and had to be revived. This procession wound from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem some 45 miles. And when it got to Jerusalem, it wound through the streets to an ancient cemetery called the Sanhedria. Some of the graves in that cemetery were over 2,000 years old. The man responsible for this event was Simon Wiesenthal. In 1949, on this particular day, he was 41 years old, and he would be a man who would never forget the atrocities of the Holocaust, nor would he let the world forget. But in all of this, there was a huge challenge that he faced. Many of the Holocaust survivors who had relatives' remains in those urns wanted him to ignore the whole process. They wanted to act like it never happened because they were embarrassed. They had anxiety and guilt over what had occurred. But for Simon Wiesenthal, the event was very emotional. In fact, these are the words he penned. As I followed the box of ashes, I remembered my family members my friends, my companions, and all of those who paid with their lives for one single sin, the sin of being born Jewish. I looked at the box and I saw my mother's face, the way it looked the last time I walked out of the house to go to the forced labor in the ghetto we were in, not realizing I would never see my mother's face again. He lost 89 relatives in the Holocaust, and he believed that somewhere in the ashes of those 30 urns of over 200,000 people, his 89 relatives were in there somewhere. When he undertook the plans to produce this event, it was a fight to get it done. 
He was a man who sparked the imagination of not only a nation, but a world in pursuing the capture of the terrible people and the killers of the Holocaust. In the early days, he was basically a one-man show, and many people refused to help. He gave speeches that ripped up their consciences and stirred their souls, made them feel guilty, made them feel a sense of justice in what he was doing. Initially, as a lone Jew, took it on himself to make sure that even the very last Nazi would not die without the knowledge, I'm after you. Mr. Weisenthal would not rest until they were captured and brought to justice. He had endured a number of prison camps, and when he was released, he had been a walking skeleton. He weighed 97 pounds. When he died, they went to the little apartment where he lived. There were over 300,000 records in files in a little apartment that he and his wife lived in. He worked almost his entire life in a little apartment surrounded by high piles of newspapers and yellowing index cards that contained all of his handwritten notes. He lived in a time before the Internet, and his main source of information came from newspapers all over the world. He would scour the legal sections for property transactions. He would read obituaries that had lists of the descendants and the deceased and other news items that gave him any shred of information that he needed to trace down the Nazi criminals of World War II. On his walls in his apartment did not hang signed paintings and beautiful decor. On his wall hung the maps of Europe with the names of the death camps and the concentration camps. So every day he was reminded, I cannot quit pursuing these criminals. Those cities were the openings of doors, and he went to them. He would read municipal population registries, historical documents, telephone books, anything he could get his hand on. For you see, Simon Weisenthal looked on the Holocaust not just as a crime against his native Jewish people. He saw it as a crime against humanity. Not just one race, but he felt it was wrong for people to do what was done. Through his work in his lifetime, a little over 1,000 Nazis would be found and punished for their part in that Holocaust. For those of you that remember and are old enough to remember, his most notable case was the pursuit, capture, an execution of Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was the master of the genocide and terrible uh, ovens and the concentration camps. And they went down and found him in Argentina. If you've never read this story, it's fascinating. You can read the book, The House on Garibaldi Street, or number eight, Garibaldi Street, written by two different authors. But the Jewish secret police were notified by Simon Weisenthal, and they went in and got him. And brought him out. And some of you are old enough to remember in the 1960s when it was the first time in the history of the world there was a live execution on television. 
and the Jewish people executed him on worldwide television. It was Simon Weisenthal that never gave up. He had a part in capturing Carl Seibenbauer. And those of you may not remember his name, but most of you do remember who he captured. He was the one responsible for finding, incarcerating, and ultimately killing Anne Frank. He decided, I will not rest as long as there's somebody out there that I can pursue. Why am I telling you this story today? Because it inspires me that a man can be so given and so driven to a single cause in his life that this is what he lived for. He didn't worry about other people's opinion. He didn't worry if any other Jew in the world was involved. He said, I have a mission. I want to ask you today, what would happen in this city if the people in this building right now all of a sudden say, I have one passion in my life, and that is to tell the world about a hill where there was a cross, and on that cross died a Savior, and He can help you. I'm not interested in anything else but my mission, and my mission is to tell you about Jesus Christ. I know that it's probably not going to happen, but give me the right to have a dream that we in this day and age of affluence and, and personal uh, aggrandizement, that somewhere we could wake up and say, wait a minute, it's not about the pictures on the wall. It's not about the size of the apartment that I live in. It's about telling the world there is a cause and I'm going to pursue it. And if nobody else does, I will. Let's lift our hands for just a moment and ask the Lord to challenge us individually. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. You see, we have that same syndrome that Gideon had. We're down behind our wine press feeling like we don't have anything to offer the world. And, and if we did, nothing would happen because we're too small and we're too insignificant. Can I remind you that when the angel finally got through the thick uh, syndrome of Gideon's mind and Gideon stood up, and gave one call, and 32,000 men responded to his one call. All he could see was his inability. All he could see was his insecurity. All he could see was the limit of his own ideology of who he was. But the angel said, there's a bigger cause here. This isn't about you, Gideon. This is about a cause. And God's hearing the cry of people. I wonder how many people God heard their cry last night in Texarkana that laid on their bed and said, God, if you're real, would you send somebody to me? And there's a Gideon in this room hiding behind his wine press saying, I can't do it. I don't have the ability. I don't have the strength. That's the wine press syndrome. That if you would answer the call, God would show you. In Weisenthal's life, it was so hard. They went after him, of course. Not only the wealthy Jews in America that were embarrassed, but the Chancellor of Austria, Bruno Kriski, tried to silence him by assassinating his character in the media. In 1982, they put a bomb outside his front door, tried to kill him. 
Through it all, this is what he said. The most important thing I have done is to fight against forgetting and to keep remembrance alive. It's important to let people know that our enemies are not forgotten. I want to say thank you to God for everything I have. I don't ever want to seem like I don't appreciate the the blessings that I have. But I'm going to tell you, none of those are going to matter. When I stand before him and he passes out the rewards, it won't be what my bank account is or what car I drive or whether I own a house or not. It will be how involved was I in the most important purpose on the face of the earth. Am I telling anybody about Jesus? Am I bringing anybody to church? Am I teaching a Bible study? Am I going to coffee with a lost person? Am I calling anybody? Am I doing anything for him? Or am I living the wine press syndrome? I, 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 you don't understand, preacher. I, I can't talk well. You don't understand. I don't know the Bible well. I, I couldn't teach a Bible study. I, I, you got a syndrome. You got a series of symptoms that are contributing to you hiding down behind and I believe there's an angel in this room today that said if you'll just give me your barley cake if you'll just give me what you got you don't have to have great things you don't have to have arsenals and weapons and men just what do you have go in the house and get something and you know he went in there and he got a little deal and he made a little barley cake barley cake was the weakest the weakest most uh least desirable if you came to somebody's house they served you barley cakes when they didn't have anything else if they had something better that that was like crackers that was like like the lowest form and so Gideon goes in the house and and he doesn't have much because he has himself locked in this syndrome and he goes in there and he makes a little barley cake and he brings it out to give to the angel and he puts it on the rock and what happens to it he's so pleased with himself it turned out just right and the crust is brown and everything looks good and here you are sir and what does the angel do he sticks his deal out and the fire goes up and it's like how would you feel a while ago you're talking to an angel now you're standing there by yourself he took your food he took it you don't think that feel weird? Y'all look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Nod your head like a good Baptist. Thank you. You just gave him your best. He went up. What do you do? Let me tell you about that barley cake. That's all he had. What was he doing? He was grinding his meal behind the wine press because he was afraid. And so he went in and made his little cake. And this is so wonderful to me because my sister's here. She will uh, probably agree with this. I think she's always been the rich one in the family. But anyway, I think she would agree we came from a poor family. We didn't have a lot in life. We were from the other side of the tracks, just redneck folks trying to make it, working in the fields, picking cotton. That's our background. We didn't have a lot. I can relate to the fact he didn't have very much to offer. But he offered what he had. He offered who he was. And the angel said, I'll take that. And he went away. And he thought the barley cake was gone. But guess what happened a few days later? After 32,000 people followed him. And God said, that's way too many. And after he thinned it on down and got down to about 300 folks, all of a sudden he went and God said, you scared? He said, you better believe I'm scared. There's a whole lot of them folks out there. Don't. It's not wrong to be scared. 
I'm scared. I've been doing this for uh, forever, years and years, decades. I still get scared when I knock on doors. I still get scared when I pass out flyers. I still get scared when I pull up in front of a house and I'm going to go in there and teach a Bible study. I'm not Mr. Confidence. I'm not Mr. Cock. I got this thing. Absolutely not. I'm like, God, please don't let him be home right now. I'll come back Thursday. And, and maybe you've never done those kinds of things. But, 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 but I don't I feel like I have a lot to offer them. But I got a barley cake. And the barley cake is just who I am. It's what I am. It's just me. It's nothing special. It's nothing that everybody. It's just a barley cake. But look what happened. When he became afraid, the angel said, and God spoke and said, if you're scared, get your servant and go over there and listen to, to, to what that man said. And he went over there and eased dropped on that tent and the man was talking to the other man do you remember this story and he said what did you see he said I had a dream I had a dream and in my dream a barley cake that's what happened to the barley cake God said if you give me what you have I will take it and I will use it and it will be what makes great things happen in your life and he said I saw a barley cake and I imagine old Gideon thinking that's where my barley cake went that angel took my barley cake and it took it up there and he kept it warm and he used it in that man's dream and when he said I saw a barley cake coming down Gideon said that's me I'm not much and I'm all God can use right now but it'll be enough would you quit looking at yourself would you quit looking at your ability would you quit saying I'm not smart enough would you please quit saying I don't have enough Bible knowledge would you quit doing that would you quit living the wine press syndrome and just say Lord here's my barley cake whatever you want to use it for however you want to use this life you may be seated I don't know anything about what you do here obviously you have an absolutely gorgeous church an amazing pastor and wife and family and Beautiful music. I wouldn't be ashamed of anybody to come to this church. Beautiful. So I don't know. Maybe you've got uh, an intricate, well-oiled outreach mechanism in place. and I don't know. But what I'm saying is, for years, we've done things like, well, we're going to have outreach Saturday morning at 11. So everybody comes. That's great. They give you flyers and Go pass out the flyers or whatever. But you had to work Saturday. Oh, man, feel bad. Missed outreach. So we don't do nothing. We missed it. <laughs> this is the only time that you won't like me, okay? Well, no, nah, there might be other times, but. And we have just said, when all the time, God is saying, wait, wait, wait just a moment. Just because you had to work Saturday morning at 11 doesn't mean you can't do something. Why can't you tell that co-worker, hey, let's go to Starbucks for a cup of coffee on Saturday. And don't even talk about the Bible first. Just find out about them. Let them talk. Build a connection. Build a friendship. Sooner or later, you... You write this down in your Bible and I'll sign my name to it. Sooner or later, they're going to say, you know, I can tell you're a little different. What is it about when that's when you say, I go to church. Let me tell you about my church. And, and you, you, can, you can talk to somebody out of Starbucks. 
You can pick up your phone and call somebody that used to attend this church and say, we just, just want you to know we've been missing you and we hope to see you again soon. You can do that. I tell my people at home, do something. Do something. I got some so shy they're like me. They're so shy they don't, they're scared of their own shadow. I said, get you some flyers and find you some bulletin boards and like a stealth thing when nobody's looking, run in there and pin the flyer in the billboard and run back, get in your car and drive off. And they've been doing it all over our area. One of my ladies sent me a picture the other day of it right smack in the middle of a big old billboard down in one of the surrounding cities. She said, I'm walking through this place. I looked up and there's one. That's one of them stealth folks that was all scared and felt like they couldn't do anything. But they, I said, you know what? Ain't nobody looking now. I'm going to put this on the bulletin board. Don't tell me you can't do something. I don't care what your barley cake is. You can do something. You can put it on a bulletin board. You can pass out a flyer. You can hand a track. You can call somebody. You can get with somebody. If you want to do it bad enough, if it becomes the purpose of your life, you can achieve so many great things. I got one more thing to say, but don't think that didn't take a while because I got one more thing. But I want to tell you this little story and then I'll quit. I don't have a clock in here. I want to tell you a story that I love and many of you probably already heard it. But good stories can be heard more than once. He was a 34-year-old school teacher. And on a hot, humid day, July 2nd, 1863, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was in the fight of his life. He was a teacher, of all things. Not only was he a teacher, he didn't teach math or spell. He taught rhetoric, of all things. And now he was a colonel in the Union Army. He stood at the the far left edge of a group of 80,000 men stretched across fields and hills, stretching all the way to a little town called Gettysburg. Earlier that day, his colonel had come by and told he and his men, whatever you do, you cannot let them come through here, whatever you do. You can't withdraw can't back up you got to stay if they overrun you they're behind us and they're going to get us all you're the one that's got to hold your ground 2 30 afternoon in the afternoon the first charge came they were run up hills fast they could chamberlain's men had just built a little wall that morning and they got down behind that little rock wall and they stopped them on that first charge pushed them back down the hill Then came a second charge. Then came a third charge. On the fourth assault, Chamberlain was actually knocked down by a bullet, hit him right in the belly, and it hit his belt buckle, knocked him down. At that time in history, battles were fought hand-to-hand with artillery and small ammunition, and so they were close. The last charge, they had almost breached the wall. As they got ready to charge the next time, Chamberlain felt sorry for his men. He later wrote of the event, their leader had no knowledge or welfare tactics. I knew nothing about fighting. I'm saying that to say if you don't know anything about soul winning, God can use your barley cake. As they waited, here they came. They came up the hill again. 
He said, the only thing I had that served me well that day was I was a stubborn man and I wouldn't give up. He said, I knew I might die, but I knew I wouldn't die with a bullet in my back. <laughs> I've always liked that. You may get me, but you won't shoot me in the back. You're going to have to shoot me in the chest because I'll be coming at you. Then came the next attack, the fifth charge. His men didn't even have time to reload. They're literally swinging their rifles like clubs and trying to fight back, and they did. Once again, they were knocked back down the hill. He said, go get the 83rd. We need help. They said, there is no 83rd. They've been wiped out. He said, get us. Our men, some more bullets. He said, sir, we don't have any more bullets. He said, well, get the ammunition off of the guys that have already died. They said, we've already done that. We don't have anything left. And so there he was. He's standing there with no bullets. And the opposite army coming. He didn't know what to do. I don't know if you've ever been there in life, but. Man, I went to start a home missions church in Canada one time, and it seemed like such a romantic idea. Man, I was going to, woo, until I got there. And all of a sudden, it wasn't near as romantic when I pulled up to that church, Brother Archie, and it wasn't nobody but me and my wife and my little girl. Life was, wasn't easy. But old Chamberlain, he, he said, get us some more bullets. We don't have any bullets. Get them off the dead men. He said, there's no bullets there either. We already got them. So you know what he did? This is the crazy moment in history. On this moment hinged possibly the wars that followed worldwide. If he had not held, the Confederates would have took Gettysburg. Then they would have took Washington. And our country would have been two. And had we been two countries or more, when World War II came, we wouldn't have had the power, nor the money, nor the might to withstand what happened in Europe. So here he is on a hot afternoon, and life is hard. It's not easy. What does he do? He doesn't know what to do. He's young and experienced. And if you've never won a soul, you're going to feel that. I don't know what I'm doing. Just do it. Just do it. Get out from behind your wine press. Shake off the wine press syndrome that says I'm not smart enough or old enough. Or Shake that off. So here's Chamberlain. So what does he do? His men are looking at him. Nobody knows, and they're forming up again for another charge. He jumps up on the wall like a fool. He jumped up. Is it okay? Just, I don't want to. Everything's so nice and neat around here. Don't come to our place. We look like rednecks. But he jumps up on the wall and just folds his arms. And, and the guys running up the hill with their rifles, they stop. They literally do this. They're going, whoa, 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 whoa. what's he doing? What's he doing? He's just standing there with his arms folded. He scared him. <laughs> he scared him. And he looks at his men. And he says, you know what we're going to do? They said, no. They don't have any bullets. He said, we're going to charge. That's what we're going to do. And he said, charge. And so they had many more soldiers, bullets, rifles. And here come these guys charging over that, that, that wall. It scared him so bad. They, they said, he's got something going on here. Something's going, and they started running. So he's running down the hill. He's got a sword like this, and there's the Confederate guy, and the guy's got a cocked pistol in his hand, and and Chamberlain runs up to him and knocks him down, and the guy's laying there with a cocked pistol like that, and he puts a sword on his throat and he says, "You're my prisoner." What an audacity! 
All, all the guy's got to do is pull the trigger. But he scared him so bad. He said, you're my prisoner. He said, here's my gun. Not one of his 80 men lost their lives. And they captured over 400 of the enemy because there was a certain boldness that came on them. I'm just telling you what I felt this week in praying for this church. That the revival you're looking for is not in technique. It's not in a new program. It's not in a logo. It's in somebody saying, I'm charging. I'm sick and tired of sitting on the bench and wishing I could be a soul winner. Wishing I could do something. I'm going to challenge everybody in this building. Get on the phone and call somebody. Go pick them up in your car and bring them to the house of the Lord. Music, would you come? You can be a dynamic person for God. You don't have to be the same. He might invite somebody from work or school or wherever you are in life to go to a coffee shop, take his Bible, and sit down with them. He might say, you got your driver's license yet? He don't have a driver's license. He might say, well, I can't drive a car, but I can walk around my neighborhood. I can go tell my neighbors. I preached a revival one time. And a guy lived next door to a woman for 30 years. And I said, does she want to come to church? He said, oh, she don't want to do it, God. I understand. And a little six-year-old boy, his grandson, didn't know that. So you know what she did? He went over there and he said, would you come to church with me tonight? She was 80 years old. Had gone to the First Baptist Church for over 50 years. She came to church that night. And I'm the evangelist. And I'm thinking, well, we just need to have a nice, calm service tonight. Poor lady will die of a heart attack if she sees us in full, you know, rolling and jumping and screaming. Well, you know how it is. What did they do that night? They went slap crazy. And I'm up there. I'm thinking, oh, we'll never see this lady again as long as we live. And I look back and tears are running down her face. And I went back and shook her hand. And I said, are you okay with all this? Are you scared? She said, scared? This is what I've been looking for my whole life. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Get out from behind your wine press. Shake off the syndrome of fear and insecurity. And make up your mind. I can do something for God. I can call somebody. I can pass out flyers. I can do something for God. I want you to close your eyes for just a moment. And if there's just a little shred of desire in your life to do something for God, I'm going to ask you to just kind of walk up here today and we're going to pray together. You need to get a revelation like Simon Weisenthal had. i got purpose for my life. I'm not just going to buy nice wall hangings. I'm going to purpose my life to be something and do something for God. I've been down behind my wine press afraid of the Midianites, afraid of what the world would think, afraid of what other people would think of me but I'm getting out today I'm giving God my barley cake and when I do he's going to use my barley cake to defeat the enemy come close come close get close get close get us a